Thank you, John. It's, uh, it's, it's a great joy to be here for a lot of reasons. I've fallen in love with Winter Garden. Um, the city I live in, Franklin, has a lot of similarities. We're just growing too fast. You guys still feel like I can walk along the street here and, uh, and not be in a hurry and not just dodge all the growth, although you guys are growing amazingly fast as well. But the growth we want to focus on this morning really has nothing to do with our populations or the economy of the communities where God has placed us. I'm so thankful that we get to think about growth and good stuff like grace and freedom and beauty, uh, substance significance. And the way we're going to get there, uh, Ironmen this year have chosen the book of Ecclesiastes as kind of the storyboard by which you men and your friends are going to get to immerse ourselves into the story of God. Now, we're going to be looking. You've got all a set of notes, same notes I have in my hand. And we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And what I love about this book is just reflective of what really, if we understand the whole of God's Word, we'll really begin to realize this isn't just a book of rules that we aren't good at keeping. From Genesis to Revelation... God has given us the gift of a purpose, of meaning, of vision, of significance, of, of knowing who he is and therefore getting to know who we are. And a lot of the way God tells his story is a lot more honest and real than a lot of us have understood growing up in church culture. Or maybe for some of us, one of the reasons we've stayed away from churches is because we assume there, they are people that just are a lot odder and different than me. Maybe some of us in this room just are beginning to ponder a faith story and don't know what to make of church people or Jesus, etc. Let me, let me encourage you, as you study Ecclesiastes this year, you're going to be invited to see real men in Scripture being honest about all the things we try to do, to find significance, to find what to do with the longings that every man in this room have. Now, what the writer of Ecclesiastes does for us in chapter 2 is to give us his story. He's going to look back over a lot of his life and to say, I have tried every conceivable thing under the sun to find relief, to find fulfillment, to find joy. And he's going to show us very honestly through his vulnerability how none of those things work. They were never enough until he came once again to understand that life under the sun is not enough, but life in the sun is what we absolutely want. So I invite you this morning to know that in this room, uh, these are real men. When you hear iron men, don't think of just simply, you know, uh, dancing deltoids and uh, taunt pecs. Think of iron sharpening iron. This is, this is a safe place. This is a place where every man in this room equally needs the grace of God. So let me, let me read through this uh, one chapter, and we're going to see the trajectory that's going to invite all of us to ponder, who, who really is setting the price tags in my life? You know, why does this matter more than this? And is there a currency? Is there a wealth? Are there riches that basically change the price tags for all the things we think that would be enough? 
So let me just pray very, very briefly. Then let's just walk through an honest man's story of how he sucked at life before he really came to rest in the true riches of the gospel. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for the legacy of this incredible ministry. Lord, the many ministries that are highlighted here. Lord, we want to be iron men. We want to be better men. And that requires that we become gospel men. Would you show us what that means today as we open the treasure of your word that's just so much more raw and real than customarily we think of. Thank you, Lord, whether Solomon wrote this book or someone that understood Solomon's life, we pray that you would just breathe afresh upon our hearts. I pray for, um, Lord, any of us here this morning that um, have a hard time concentrating on the demands of life, the the shame we carry, the assumption that you could never truly love a man like me. Lord, I just pray all that stuff would just fall down under the weight of grace. Uh, come now, Lord, uh, protect these men from anything I would teach that isn't consistent with the wholeness of your word. I pray in all things that we would see Jesus and that in seeing him, we would trust him. And under that end, we pray with great anticipation and gratitude in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in my prayer, I mentioned very briefly that historically Solomon is seen to be the author of this book. And I'm very comfortable assuming that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. But if he did not, it reflects Solomon's life, but it reflects so many men's life. And Two words I want you to understand about this book as you lean into this year together looking at this book. There are two reoccurring phrases that help us understand the whole book. The first phrase is life under the sun. It, it occurs over 35 times in the whole book. And what, what, here's what that phrase means. Life under the sun as it's used as a cyclical phrase in this book is life with no sealer, life with no ceiling higher than the sun that's coming up right now. Just think of life under the sun as being, all right, there is no real God. I'm going to try to live my life as though there is no God. What can I find that will be enough just under the ceiling of as far as I can see? The second word that runs through the whole book at least 30 times, if not more, is vanity. Maybe a better word would be meaninglessness because the vanity that uh, the writer of this book refers to is not looking in the mirror and hoping that you look handsome. This is not the vanity of filling out your golf shirt or you know, just simply looking like an awesome you. Uh, this is emptiness. Think of its weightlessness. It's just not enough. So what does it mean for every man in this room from the youngest to the oldest to think in terms of what, where will I go for meaning and significance, if, if I lived as though there was no God, where, where would my heart take me, my pain, my longing? So look at his story. We'll consider three things this morning that the writer, and I'm just going to say Solomon. I'm going to assume that Solomon wrote these words because it does reflect his life as we read it in the Bible. We're going to look at that the meaninglessness or the vanity or the not enoughness of pleasure. We'll consider, secondly, how wisdom and folly, both aren't enough. And then lastly, we'll look at work itself as not simply being enough to meet the deep longings that God has written into our DNA. Notice how he tells the story. 
chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you. Again, he's speaking to himself. Come now, I will test you, O myself, with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless, not enough, weightless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? Now, he's going to give us some of the places he ran to for pleasure. And a lot of this currently or in our past would say, I know what that is like. Consider what he said, verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Folly in the book of Ecclesiastes is just basically saying, I want to live on a hedonistic holiday. How, how can I view life as simply satisfying every nerve ending in my body, everything I think that would really be fun, exciting, adventurous? So here's a guy that has said, I just absolutely threw caution to the wind and said, I'm going to try on pleasure. And I'm going to go for it. I'm going to, I'm going to cheer myself with wine. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to look at fine libation as a way that will perhaps give me a sense of uh, joy, freedom, release. He did that. He embraced folly. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. It's interesting here he's saying, you know, I didn't completely go so far off the radar screen that I just became a complete idiot. I still had a frame of reference, at least at this point. And some of us can relate to that. Some of us live two lives. Some of us live as Os Guinness from England, uh, just a tremendous Christian um, defender of the faith once said, we live in two minds. And here would be a man who basically says, okay, I've got a wife, I've got a culture, I've got a job, so I'm not going to completely be an absolute moral moron. But you know what? When nobody's looking or even when I'm simply with my fun posse, I'm going to do anything I want. See, this guy's been there. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens, that phrase, under the sun, during the few days of their lives. He has a perspective that every single man in this room one day will have six other men grabbing a corner of his box and lowering him into the ground. You know, it's not a bad thing to think about mortality, guys. My mother died a month after she turned 38 years old. Buried my dad after an Alzheimer's journey long after he knew my name or face at age 92. But we all have in common, it is a short life. Don't be afraid of that, but, but steward it, honor it. This is a part of what Solomon's saying to us. I knew I'm not going to live forever, so, all right, wine, great, you know, great bourbon pours, whatever. Awesome beer, which, by the way, I had an awesome beer at your local place up here with Renault last night. What's your pub up here? Oh, my goodness, this citrus... Anyway, later, okay. As we'll see, as we will see, the Bible's not saying say no to everything, but say yes to the right one and enjoy the good things I give you. Let's go on here. So what, what, a, what a man here. I'm, I'm going to go for it. Uh, verse 4, uh, here, here's a new arena of satisfaction. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. Notice plural. Here's a guy of some means, all right? Um, not vineyard, not house, but many. 
I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. So here's a man who lives in a world where slavery was legal and he had a bunch of them. In fact, the Bible says that Solomon uh, had at one time 700 wives and 300 concubines. God bless him, no thank you. <laughs> but he, had, he, he owned people and he owned them long enough that they bore children. So there's a long-term life of foolishness here. So he's just showing us, okay, I've had everything you think you want that would be enough. I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. When he says I acquired male and female singers, that's mean, that means he didn't just hire the Beatles, he owned the Beatles. I mean, you just really sense the ridiculous amount of discretionary spending at this man's <coughs> fingertips. It, it, some of us still think, if I had a little more, it would be enough. Or if I had a tenth of what he had. He had that 10% and the other 90%. It goes on. Verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. Again, there's still that reference of I've still got a story of my culture, my extended family. I've got a grandmother to answer to. So he is living like a hedonist, which is a man bent on pleasure, with a degree of civility. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained. Under the sun. Some, you know, when I read this part of this chapter, I think of, uh, oh my goodness, who was that incredibly wealthy entrepreneur that built that gigantic plane he never flew? Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. Some of you don't know that name. Some of us remember. Here, here, here's, here's an Ecclesiastes 2 guy. At the end of his life, you know, he. He lived for his last several years in a lonely hotel room in Las Vegas, all alone, so paranoid about who was going to get his stuff. And uh, he, his fingernails grew out, his, uh, the, the squalor he lived in, the closets filled with his own urine, the man became so paranoid of losing what he built his life on. He had it all, but he had nothing. He was not able to say, really, with this wise man, meaninglessness, it is not enough. Well, he goes further into sharing his story. Look at where Solomon now says, here's another chapter of my life that I really lived out to try to find some sense of significance and meaning and purpose. Verse 12, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom. 
and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Now he's contrasting here. He's telling us about there was a season when he tried to get his act together. Tried to say, all right, I'm going to live like a wise man in the square. I'm not just going to live on a gigantic pleasure cruise. Okay, I'm going to kind of read some stuff. I'm going to kind of, you know, show up at the local Kiwanis club. I'm going to be a good citizen, serve as a councilman, you know, an alderman or something. I'm going to, I'm going to be smart. I'm going to be wise. And, and he's doing this. He's seeing, okay, this to some degree is better than folly, and yet in another sense, it is its own folly. A thinking that simply under the ceiling of the sun, that there's anything I can really do that will be enough. See, a part of what he has shown us here that the Bible would say in Genesis 1 and 2, guys, our longings are not wrong. We, we're made to have purpose and meaning and significance. We, we are. But what sin does, it sabotages good longings and puts us in this very story that Solomon is giving us. It's just not enough. It's not enough just to be smart. You begin to have the perspective that he came to. Verse 15, then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is not enough. It's meaningless. It's vain. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come with both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. By the way, this book must not be read as a Debbie Downer. It, just think, like, think as we're reading, as you're sitting with a man that loves you enough to say, you got, you got time for coffee? And, and someone that sit, would sit down with you out of their own brokenness that would say, let me tell you what the last 30, 40 years of my life have been like as I actually got everything my dad said I had to have or everything my culture said would be enough. Let me tell you, let's just sit here and talk about how it's not enough. That's a gift. It's a gift, the gift of vulnerability. It's one of the things I smell throughout this room to be with some of the brothers in the boardroom praying before and just to see the kindness, to see the beauty of tears of humility that grace alone can create because a lot of significant men in this room that have a lot of these advantages that Solomon did and yet they are concluding, you know what, apart from the real son, S-O-N, it's just not enough. One more arena and then we'll see where the scriptures direct us. He goes now to work. <clears throat> So again, the Bible says we, we are made to enjoy work. We are, we are made to create stuff. That's good. The end of the Bible is not simply go buy yourself a New Testament, a little island, and meditate and sing hymns for the rest of your life. We're called to be creative. We're called to engage in our culture. Every one of you that has a job should not start thinking the Christian life is going to be if you really love Jesus, you're going to simply quit your job and go work in Africa. Actually, there are more conversion growth rate in Africa than in our country by great percentage. Everywhere you work is God's domain, is the opportunity for you to live out a life of really, what does it really mean to be a man of significance? 
So what does work mean and how can it be empty? So I hated life, verse 17, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I'd told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Some of you right now are living in father stories. You're looking at your children. You're thinking, I'm building all of this. I want to hand it off to you. But you're an idiot. <laughs> it's just the dynamics of life. You think about, why do I work so hard? It's a good question. It's a very, very good question, brothers. It's a very good question. Why do you live such a driven life? The Bible invites us to consider that. Let's listen further to Solomon's story. Verse 20. So my heart began to despair over all the toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they have to another who is not told for it. This too is empty, not enough, meaningless, vain, and a great misfortune. What do people get for the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. Somebody right now did not sleep more than two hours last night because you know what this feels like. It's never enough. I never get done. There's another list. This, too, is meaningless. Well, fortunately, as this chapter winds down, we begin to see uh, the gift of, of a man like men in this room that would say, you know, uh, wow. Uh, taking the time to look back in my past and in my present and into the future. Is, is there hope? Is there, is there a way to think about doing life differently than, than, than having everything you want or striving for more or looking at pleasure, thinking that really if you had a harem, it would be enough? Brothers, it would not. You know, one of the reasons why we're so drawn to pornography Pornography gives us the illusion that we can find the intimacy for which we really crave without the responsibility of relationship. And it never, ever, ever is enough. Some of you may know my friend that in our church family in downtown Franklin that lived out that story of complete pleasure. Do you know the name Nate Larkin? Anybody know the name Nate Larkin? Uh, Samson and the Pirate Monks. You should get him sometime down here to speak. Nate was... Uh, a pastor in Florida, grew up in an incredibly um, Christ-haunted family, went to Princeton Seminary, graduated first in his class when the preaching award came to Florida, planted a church, was successful, and then discovered the meaninglessness of ministry. It, too, was not enough. Nate got hooked into a life of sexual addiction. The first chapter in his book starts with this story. I've spent over... $300,000 on pornography and hookers. And hallelujah, it wasn't enough. He came to Franklin, began to study the book of Romans with a lot of us, began to hear the gospel in a way he had never heard it before. And now this dear man has just been given an incredible privilege of saying to others that would look to pleasure, sexual, favor, folly, having money, having companies, all this to say, there is a greater way. This is where we're going to conclude this morning. Look at these words finally as we finish chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Then um, I'll, I'll beg your attention for about 10 more minutes as we look at two awesome passages would say, that would say to us, 
Well, here's then where we do go, can go, must go. But notice how Solomon finishes this one chapter. Verse 24. Is there an option to the emptiness, vanity, and vapor of life just under the ceiling of the world as we know it apart from God? Verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toll. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Now, that's a phrase that you don't find often through the book of Ecclesiastes, but it is at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is, this is Solomon's way of saying, here's what I finally came to understand. That the, that the eating and the drinking, the creating, the owning, the building is not bad in, in and of itself, but without God, it will never be enough. The price tags, the value we put on these things are fool's gold. But with God, you see, again, if, if you're just beginning to think about Christianity, this is not going to say never drink again, never have sex with your wife again, you know, give up your company, put on a hair shirt and be very Spartan and just be boring until heaven. The exact opposite, brothers. Again, the good longings that you have find a redemptive focus and fulfillment. Well, what does that look like? Look at Jeremiah two little final portions of scripture that will give us a sense of where iron men this year is going to take you as you further ponder where the better men and the incredible speakers and brothers that are brought together for that conversation. I love how Jeremiah records for us God's word to men like Solomon to you and me. Jeremiah was a prophet that God raised up at a time when his own people, their hearts were wandering. And, 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 and Jeremiah was speaking to a generation of people that probably knew the Lord but began to be tricked into thinking there's got to be more than Jesus. Listen to what God says to that generation and to you and me. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. Isn't that profound to think? Here, here's God saying to a Solomon or to a Scotty or to a John or to a Scott Brady or a Rob Passwaters or Mark Johnston, all of us. By the way, that's one of my gospel posses in this room. <clears throat> Men that are coming to see the price tags by the grace of God can change. You know, God's being very personal here. He's not saying be damned with your riches, your work, your all these other things. But brothers, we're all going to boast in something. That means depend upon something. Look to something to find meaning and fulfillment, a sense of significance. God's saying, look, if, in, in all your boasting, boast in this, that you know me. Not that you're performing for me. Guys, for years, I went to church long before I went to Christ. I still had this image as a little kid growing up in the church I grew up in that it was all about going to a big, boring, odd room dressed in clothes I generally would not put on to hear how I suck at life and I better get my act together. <laughs> and in many ways, that's doing church under the sun with no ceiling above culture of just going to church. Do you see what God's, God is saying here in the first person through Jeremiah? Look, don't, don't, don't depend upon, don't run to, don't boast in your, your wisdom, your smarts, your, you know, your cultural togetherness. Don't, don't boast in your 
your strength or might, you know, how much you can deadlift or whatever strength you have, a personality. Don't boast in your riches. Boast in this, that you understand and know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Just to, if you don't hear me say anything else today as we wind down, hear this. God delights in your knowing him. Dang it, I wish I'd understood that sooner in life. Even in ministry. You see, the part of where I relate to this is I had a burnout as a 50-year-old pastor. My, my idol structures, my broken cistern, really wasn't running after women. It was really confusing working for Jesus with really walking with Jesus. And, and, and let me tell you, we guys in vocational ministry, we can look to our jobs to define us just as much as any man in this room that's building cultures and condos and, and whatever else. I love this. The Lord's saying, look, you're made to boast. You're made to go. You're made to be alive. You're made to be energized. But, but focus it on this, that you understand and know me. Well, let's go a little bit further with our last scripture to think about what that can mean. One more man's story, Philippians 3, 8 and 9. A lot of you would know the name, the Apostle Paul. Before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a super-duper religious guy, a member of the High Council and the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, which would mean he is so freaking self-righteous, disgusting. He's the kind of person you know in your world that's always checking you out to make sure you know how you, too, suck at life and you suck at God. But like Solomon, like those under Jeremiah's watch, Paul came to a place of really saying, what really matters? Who are our true riches? And he gives us these words in a great testimony chapter, Philippians 3. He says, Paul says to us, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them dung, I consider them dung, literally in the Greek, this is animal manure, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, notice this please, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I love this passage because Paul is saying, I, I have been there, done that. I have been religious. I've had power. I've had significance. I've had fulfillment. But now I, when I pull out my new abacus, my new computer, when I do the math, everything I used to value, it's just like it's animal poop on the streets of Winter Garden compared to the exceeding treasure and riches of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, notice what he says in conclusion, how we get to know right, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul talks about a righteousness that is by faith, not by works. See, if some of you are here this morning thinking, oh my gosh, I'm busted. Everything Solomon said, I want, I'm grabbing for. I hope, no, I hope I'm not out of this morning. I hope you are. The gospel will out you, not so that you'll be ashamed of yourself and promise to do more, try harder, but that you'll come to understand everything we look to under the sun apart from God is our own form of righteousness. How can I put things right in my world? 
How can I even think about having a life that God would honor and bless? There's only one righteousness that is enough, my dear brothers, my friends exploring this faith. The righteousness we need comes through knowing that Jesus is primarily your substitute to trust before he is your model to follow. Jesus came into this world to live in your place a life of perfect obedience. Even before he died upon the cross to take the judgment you and I deserve. And what Paul is saying here is this. Here's the great treasure. Here's the incredible, exceeding great currency that makes sense of the rest of life. I can do my job. I can love my wife. I can be creative. I can catch big redfish. I can do anything I want in view of life in the sun. Meaning this. We can know, brothers, today that God is fully delighting in us by putting our faith in Jesus whose righteousness is considered to be ours. You got time for one more brief illustration of this? No, you, you good. If you got to go to work, we won't think you're running from Jesus, so you know, please. You, you get to work if you need to be there on time. That too is a godly thing. But let me tell you what Paul literally means here. Let's say we leave here in a few moments. And somebody say, hey guys, let's go get some breakfast. I got this breakfast place over here. But they don't take... Uh, checks or cards. Let me stop at my ATM machine and, and get some money out, and I'll buy us breakfast. So you leave here like good guys, hugging each other, kissing each other. I wish we'd videotape some of that. That was awesome. <laughs> you leave here, and, and one of you goes and puts your ATM card in the machine to get cash to buy everybody breakfast, and all of a sudden you get your little receipt out, and you realize your little paper receipt says, here's your balance, $3 billion, $17 million, $79,000.15. And you're thinking, there is a huge error here. I ain't got that in my account. Now, don't run with that monetary notion or you'll be like Solomon spending all that money. Let me tell you what Paul's talking about here. He's saying this. If you put your faith in Jesus, the very moment you do that, God literally puts in your account all the righteousness of Jesus. And the reason why Paul was free to work, to love, to engage his world was because he understood. I am not called to put a smile on Jesus' face by my do more, try harder. That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is he lived the life of obedience. He lived the righteous life for me. He died in my place upon the cross not to give me a clean slate but to fill up that slate with his own perfect righteousness. Brothers, if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, right now God has declared you legally righteous in his sight. He cannot love you more. He will never love you less. You are his adopted sons. He delights in you. He knows you. Jesus did not just die for the 4% of your sin you're aware of, but the other 96% as well. And it's why Paul and men like Paul become free and engaging, relationally alive, loving every sphere of life, building, stewarding rather than owning. Because grace frees you and me like that. The gospel of God's grace is our race resting place. God gave you those nerve endings in your body. It's good to enjoy sex with your wife. If you love Jesus, it doesn't mean you no longer think about pleasure. It, you put pleasure in the context of God. Thank you. What a God that you would give these good gifts of intimacy, of creativity, of building, of having and getting. 
But it's all born out of what Jeremiah says. Let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. How do we know our God? Through putting our faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. We're no longer condemned. We are declared righteous brothers. Truly, as I said earlier, iron men and better men are gospel men. Now, are you a gospel man? Are you here just assuming, here's the way I'm doing my next season of life. To tell you I'm honest, I'm finishing. I fold my notes. That means I'm not pulling your letter. Some of you might be thinking, I go to church and iron men. I bet God's really proud of me. Or at least my wife is. Brothers, you know, don't go to iron men, go to Jesus. Don't go to church, go to Jesus. Don't, don't take 17 of your friends simply to better men to think God's going to smile at you. Take men, but take men because you too have found life under the sun compared to life in the sun is animal manure. Brothers, let's spend this year together listening to the wisdom of God in the book of Ecclesiastes. And let's share stories with each other. What are you doing now that is not enough? Where are you running? And it's never going to be enough. Please know, as we conclude now, and I will pray, nobody in this room is beyond the reach of God's grace. If some of you, like my friend Nate Larkin, are hooked in now to a sexual addiction or a gambling addiction or just a lifestyle of drivenness, and, and you need to know it's for you that Jesus has come. For those of you more like Saul of Tarsus, you're so self-righteous, you think you're so good, you need Jesus as much as that guy. Hallelujah. He's pursuing all of us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the privilege I have this morning to blast my own heart with this gospel. Lord, I'm, you've made all of us for wonder, but we're prone to wander. And I thank you, Lord, that um, I get to walk with a group of men in this room, Lord, that constantly gossip the gospel to me and that we get to steward health care together and thinking about living and loving to the glory of God as we do our work, as we love our wives, as we help lead our kids, as we understand seasons of overwhelming windfall and seasons when life is really hard. Thank you, Jesus. This gospel makes the difference. And I pray that the righteousness of faith will land on the heart of every man in this room. Brothers, if there's any man in this room that is not certain that Jesus is your righteousness, not just your forgiveness, but your righteousness, just in your own childlike way, just by faith now, receive that gift of eternal life. Receive that gift of faith, that deposit in your account of the righteousness that not only will make heaven your gift, but that will make this life in the sun transformative. Some of you brothers, as our eyes are still closed, want to talk to other brothers. Please don't just run away now to get busy. There's men in this room, that, the Ironman staff, the volunteers, would love to pray with you, talk with you, and to share their own need of the same grace that's offered to all of us so freely. Father, thank you for this day, this morning. Offer praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good to be with you, brothers. Thank you.